Well, hey, Kairos. I'll say, bless the Lord. If you'll say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Well, it's been a while since we've been up in the attic. If you guys were... That seltzer water. If you guys were quarantining with us uh, during COVID, this is where we did a lot of our online stuff. Um, and yeah, it, it needs needs a little refresher. Um, guys, I'm, I'm not there with you tonight. Um, it's fall break, and so I'm trying to spend some intentional time with my family. Uh, but you guys are in for a treat tonight. I asked David Hanna. Uh, pastor at Lachlan Springs uh, to come hang out with you guys. Um, it's up in East Nashville. He's a part of our family of churches and just a great dude and we have a great connection. And so I wanted you guys to be able to meet David Hanna. He'll be up in just a second to share God's word. A couple things you need to know about him. He's a Belmont alumni with a philosophy and broadcasting major. Then he went to the University of Kentucky law school because he's like lawyer smart um, and then also spent some time in the mission field um, in Italy but he's married has a beautiful wife Nicole they've been married for 23 years they got two kids Ruby Love and Atticus which are just waiting to be turned into mixed drink names especially in East Nashville um, David has a passion for food passion for adventure traveling learning different cultures music uh, fire pits and he says that he'll pick mountains over beaches any day of the week um, to which I say why not go to the mountains that has a beach but that's that's your deal David uh, his most often gifted book to people is mere Christianity um, he spends the most amount of money at Lachlan table when it comes to restaurants because he's a huge foodie again talk to him about anything that you need meal-wise, and he's the one who gave us the Quanto Basto illustration about how much is enough, moving from the table to the kitchen. And so I asked him his favorite meal, our favorite Italian dish, and he can correct me when he gets up here. He says it's Afito Matasto Crescentina Squasherini. So that, that is, sounds nothing like what he wrote. Um, his spirit animal would be a moose or a bison. I'll go with the bison, dude, any day of the week for you. Um, and surprising song on his Spotify playlist. He says, you can often hear me listening to Camp or Mandolin Orange, which, by the way, I think is actually the flavor of my seltzer water or the Avett Brothers. But he represents always uh, with the Beastie Boys, R.I.P. M.C.A. So bravo. Without uh, any further ado, uh, Kairos, will you welcome to the stage David Hanna. Thanks, David. Say nice. So after the first time I saw that video just a couple of hours ago, I had no idea what Chris was trying to say in Italian. So I, I looked it up. I looked up the email exchange between us. Um, it's not that hard. Affitato <laughs> misto with crescentine and squacquerone. It's a... It's a it's a plate of cured meats with like a local fried bread and a hyper local, indescribable, slightly sour, spreadable cheese. Um, it will absolutely knock your socks off. That was my favorite lunch, still one of my favorite meals in the world. I am so grateful for you guys having me tonight. Uh, as Chris said, 
My name is David. I'm the pastor at the church at Lachlan Springs up in uh, wild and wonderful East Nashville. Did spend some time on the mission field. Tonight, in many ways, it's kind of a homecoming for me because I preached my first ever sermon in 2008 at Kairos. Kairos looked very different then than it looks now. It was all the way on the other side of the building. Mike Glenn was still preaching at Kairos every single week when he asked me to come and speak. We were about to go to the mission field. I don't think he knew it was my first ever sermon. I preached on Jeremiah 29 11. It did not go well. Uh, I am hoping tonight it can go a little bit better than that. <laughs> Nine years in Italy, God called me back to uh, take the pulpit at the church at Lachlan Springs. It's the first time I've ever been a pastor. It's terrifying. It was and is terrifying. I do not think I would have been able to take that leap but for knowledge of a meeting that occurs in this building every single Monday afternoon. All of the pastors within our family of churches they get together for a couple of hours every Monday, and we sit in a room, and we cut up, and we make fun of each other, and we laugh, and we talk about sports, and we pray over one another, and we encourage one another, and we hold each other accountable, and we bounce ideas off each other. We borrow each other's perspective and perceptions, all of which gave me confidence that that. If God was calling me to this, he would not leave me alone. He would surround me with this band of brothers that could pour into me, that could keep me between the rails, that could mentor me in many ways. My confession to you tonight is as wonderful as that time is and continues to be for me. It often also feeds this nagging thoughts that never leaves the back of my mind that I just don't belong. I walk into this room with all these incredible pastors and ministers and uh, men like Chris Brooks and he's got this gorgeous beard and the skinny jeans and he's, he's quoting Tozer and Chesterson and Dallas Willard as though he knows them personally. Somebody will bring up a passage of scripture randomly and another pastor will, will list off the six different commentaries that they just happen to be reading about that scripture passage this week. They do a deep dive into concepts that quite frankly, I can only scratch the surface. They make these grand, beautiful statements and I cannot tell you how often I have thought, I know what every word you just said means individually. But when you put them together in that order, I am completely lost. So often, I leave that meeting on Mondays thinking, I am in way over my head. How did I get to this place with these people and when are they going to find me out? If you've ever taken any business management classes, you might have run across this management 
concept known as the Peter Principle. It is not very creatively named as it was developed by a guy named Lawrence Peter. Uh, back in 1969, he wrote this entire book about it. I, don't, I also don't know why he wrote an entire book about it because I can summarize the entire thing in one sentence. The idea of the Peter Principle is all employees eventually rise to the level of their own incompetence which seems pretty morbid when you first hear it, but, but as you kind of unpack that idea, as you process through that, it makes a lot of sense. You know, you, you start at a low-level position and you work really hard and you get really good at it and you, you move up the ladder in your company, you get to middle management, you're pretty good at that as well, you're pretty competent, you work pretty hard, eventually you're in upper management and at some point you rise to the level that you're just in over your head. You've gone further than you ever thought you would go, and you've exhausted every drop of competence that you have. I feel the Peter Principle often on a very deep and emotional level. I went to, I went to high school here in Nashville, a uh, small school not known for its athletics. If you can walk and chew gum at the same time, you were pretty much able to just kind of point to a position on whatever team you wanted to play and do that thing. So I grew up a basketball player. I was able to play basketball there. Let's not pretend the competition was great, but it gave me some opportunities, and eventually it gave me the opportunity to play basketball in college. As Brooks mentioned, I went to Belmont. What, what? Um, I, got the, I got the opportunity to play basketball at Belmont under Coach Burt. Within about three minutes of my very first practice, I had never heard of the Peter Principle, but I understood it intimately. I had absolutely risen to the level of my own incompetence. I was surrounded by basketball players that were light years ahead of me. You would think this story becomes one of those, so, so I you know, put my nose to the grind zone, and I worked really hard, and I became... None of that happened. More or less, I gave up. I can't do what they do. I can't be what they are, which secured me a very comfortable seat on the end of the bench for all of my years there. My uniform rarely, if ever, got sweaty. I had the best seat in the house to watch really good ball players play really good ball. There's not a day that goes by that I don't regret giving up on that opportunity. After undergrad, I, I was fortunate enough to get married to an amazing woman. Uh, she went to grad school at Vandy to become a nurse practitioner. I ended up going to law school at the University of Kentucky to become an attorney. We both practiced in those careers for several years before God called us into full-time ministry, Mission Field, in Bologna, Italy. I was not super happy about that. God and I had some pretty long, hard conversations. Because, again, I knew I was going to be in a place of utter incompetence. My Italian was about as good as most of yours, much better than Chris Brooks's. Um, you know, I, spaghetti, lasagna, vino, chow. That was about it. And now, not only did I have to do something I didn't know how to do, but I had to do it when I was up to my eyeballs in student loans. It made no sense. It frustrated me. When we got to Bologna and, and we started meeting with some of the missionaries that had been there a long time as they were training us, uh, one of the things they told us, maybe more often than anything else, was you need to understand how slow this ministry is. 
The next time your feet touch American soil, David, will be four years from now. Do not be discouraged if when you go back on that break, you have yet to have a real gospel conversation with an Italian. It just takes that long to establish yourself in the culture. It takes that long to plant roots. It takes that long to get your neighbors to trust you, to listen to anything you have to say. They told me not to be discouraged four years when I went home, but I was discouraged that day. That's the hard stuff to hear when you've given up everything. You know what we found? During our time in Bologna, the University of Bologna, where we were called to serve, is the oldest university in the Western world, founded in 1088 AD, nearly 1,000 years ago. So quite literally, the city of Bologna grew up around this university. The city of Bologna grew around a pursuit of knowledge. For a thousand years, they had cultivated a culture that placed a premium on education and the pursuit of knowledge. Suddenly, an American nurse practitioner and an American attorney show up in a building. And we are all of a sudden invited to tables that missionaries before us had never been invited to. We were able to have conversations that previously missionaries had never been able to have in that city. We were able to bend the ears of people that had never listened before because the titles we carried carried weight in that culture. It had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with my wife. It certainly had nothing to do with our competence. You know what else we found? The Celtics and Lakers of Italian basketball both exist in downtown Bologna, Italy. It is the only city in Europe where basketball is held to the same level as soccer. I had no idea. But now I'm working with these university students. I'm working with these young men who come to find out I was a college basketball player. I tried to help them understand that calling me a player was really playing fast and loose with the English language. They didn't care because I could tell stories. They were obsessed with American basketball. And suddenly we're invited into living rooms and into pubs where we had never been invited before. God began to grow a college ministry based on these seemingly random seasons in our life, these things that we didn't understand. We had a verse as that ministry grew that we really focused on. It says that God's promise to us is that when we seek him, we will find him. It's one of my favorite promises in the entire scripture. You know what verse that is? Jeremiah 29, 13. It came from this place, from that sermon that I completely butchered. God built a ministry out of that 7,000 miles away. 
as I think back through those things, I am brought to the sixth chapter of John. If you have your Bibles with you, I would love it if you would turn with me to John chapter 6. I'm going to read one of the most familiar passages in the entire scripture. We're going to start in John 6 verse 8. John writes, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy over here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with with pieces of the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. I'm guessing there are some in this room that are wondering, how do you get from sitting on the bench at Belmont to the feeding of the 5,000. This is the the one miracle outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that that is written about in all four Gospels. There is so much to learn in this story. There is so much to learn in in this miracle. Jesus, his, his ministry had been growing. It was gaining momentum. People were coming from all over the region to watch him perform miracles every day, to, to listen to him teach every day. The religious elite of the time had, had already started to get nervous. They were plotting against him because they thought he was going to steal their power. He had these 12 men around him. These disciples, these apprentices that that he spent every waking moment pouring into. He was tired. So here in the sixth chapter of John, as in many other places in the gospel, Jesus gets his buddies, they get in a boat, they go across the Sea of Galilee trying to get away, trying to find some rest. As soon as they get to the other side, they look over and they see the crowds coming. 5,000 men, it says, that doesn't count the women and children. We're talking about a crowd of probably 10, 12, maybe even 15,000 people coming from all over the region around the Sea of Galilee because they were insatiable. They were desperate to see this man. They were desperate to hear his words. And Jesus, tired, looks at his disciples, looks at the crowd and says... They've come a long way. They're tired and they're hungry. How do we feed them? The disciples, dumb as ever, like, bro, it can't be done. It's going to cost approximately a year's wages just to give them a snack. On top of that, there's no restaurants around. We got to send them home. Well, if you spent more than three minutes in a church building in your entire life, you know how the story goes. Young boy shows up, five loaves of bread, two fish. 
Jesus takes the bread, he takes the fish, he gives thanks to his Father for them, and begins to distribute them. 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people are fed. Not just to the place that they're satisfied, but they are full. They have room for seconds and thirds. It is an amazing miracle. But as I read this passage in the sixth chapter of John, the Holy Spirit always takes me to one verse. Look back with me at verse 12. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. After the miracle, after the show, after that wow moment, Jesus easily could have said, see, See who I am, see what I've done, see my power. God incarnate standing in front of you. He could have left all the crumbs for the birds. But he tells the disciples, grab a basket, pick up the leftovers. Because the Son of Man wastes nothing. Every time I read this story, the Holy Spirit whispers into my ears, the fragments of your life, the leftovers, those things you would just as soon sweep away into the dustpan, into the trash bin. Those are the things your Savior commands to be collected so that he might be glorified. Those are the things that are precious in his eyes, even when they seem troublesome or confusing to me. The broken parts, the pain, the mistakes, the frustrations. Those are the fragments that the Lord pulls together in testament to his providence, to his sovereignty. Look at verse 14. After all of this happens, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is truly the prophet, the Messiah, the promised one who has come into the world. When the people see the multiplied loaves and fish, the abundance of leftovers that are collected. They acknowledge who Jesus is. May it be the same for us. When the people see how our Lord gathers together our fragments, They will see that our God, the creator of the universe, the one that flung the stars into the sky, wastes nothing. Your experiences, your successes, especially your failures, 
those fragments that confuse you, that frustrate you, that you don't understand. They are not wasted by the creator whose image you bear. You have the opportunity to speak into someone's life in ways that no one else can. You have the opportunity to disciple someone in ways that no one else can. Because of these fragments that are not wasted, you have been uniquely and intentionally knit together for that purpose. So that your Savior might be glorified. It's these little fragments. When wedded with God's grace in his hands, not ours. That are the things the world looks at and sees Jesus. Do not be afraid, men and women of Kairos. The Lord will not waste anything. Would you pray with me? Lord, tonight we come to this place humbled and amazed by your presence with us grateful that your presence is not relegated to the walls of this room, but that you embrace us, surround us, exist in every corner, every nook, and every cranny of our lives, of our heart, of our souls. We offer nothing but loaves and fishes. Nothing but fragments and leftovers. Grateful for your promise that they are to be collected so that you may be glorified. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.